0: Do you ever find yourself thinking about the first crime you remember being scared of? No matter how long ago it was, you know what they say, you never forget your first. So today, since it's Halloween week, Amy and I thought we'd get a little personal and tell you all about the true crimes that scared us the most as kids. I'll go first. This is the story of six-year-old Eton Pates. It was a Friday morning in May 1979 in Soho, Manhattan, and for the first time, his parents said he could walk to the school bus by himself. It was only two blocks away, but he never got on the bus. The thing is, he and I were around the same age, and we lived in the same neighborhood. Today, that street in Soho is filled with fancy art galleries, high-end boutiques, and multi-million dollar lofts. But back then, when Etan and I lived there, it was one of those neighborhoods where you could walk down any street without feeling too unsafe. Everyone knew everyone else, and all the grown-ups looked out for each other's kids. It sounds crazy now to let your six-year-old walk to the bus stop alone in Manhattan, but at the time, it wasn't that weird. We were all out playing with our friends until dark. But on that morning, in just those few minutes when he was by himself, he was taken. That's when everything changed. I was just a kid, so I didn't know for sure what was going on at first. I knew something bad had happened, but no one would tell me anything specific, only that the cops were everywhere and everyone was a suspect. After that day, I knew the truth. Kids could just disappear without a trace. To this day, his body has never been found. Here's what happened. A whole day went by before his parents knew he was missing. He didn't get on the bus, which means he didn't make it to school, but no one called to let them know. When he didn't come home, his mother, Julie, reported him missing. That's when the police swarmed to the neighborhood. There must have been hundreds of them knocking on doors that night, but no one had seen him that day. His dad, Stan, worked as a photographer, and he had plenty of pictures of his son. And he always thought Eton was destined for great things, but he never thought he'd see his son's face plastered on flyers across town for that terrible reason. My mom was part of the group who helped distribute those flyers. The whole neighborhood helped, but it didn't do any good. He had vanished. But his parents never stopped looking for him. They never moved, and they never even changed their number in case Eton was somewhere out there trying to get home to them. And as the years slipped by, they didn't let the police forget his name either. In the early 80s, his face was the first missing child to appear on a milk carton. And his disappearance is the reason we all grew up muttering, stranger danger, if we found ourselves walking alone. And as it turned out, That was pretty accurate. Little did he know he was surrounded by dangerous men. One man, Jose Ramos, was a serial pedophile dating Eton's babysitter. He also happened to be molesting her son, a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy who looked a lot like Eton. This guy was a monster straight out of a horror story. He lured little boys into a drain pipe near his apartment, which wasn't far from our neighborhood. He was the number one suspect for years, but then in 2012, someone confessed. Well, Actually, to be accurate, his brother-in-law turned him in, then he confessed. His name is Pedro Hernandez. 33 years earlier, when Eton disappeared, Pedro was an 18-year-old stockboy at our neighborhood bodega. On the way to the bus, Eton stopped in. He had a dollar that he wanted to use to buy a soda for his lunch. This is what happened to him in that store from the mouth of the man that confessed. As context, the other voice you'll hear is a psychiatrist interviewing him about it again two years after his original confession. And we have to thank the New York Daily News for this recording. Take a listen.
1: You were working at the store for how long before this happened?
2: Before I, what happened?
1: Before this incident happened that brought us here today.
2: I think I was working there for a year, something like that. I'm not sure, year, two years.
1: And how long was he standing there before you, uh, before you approached him?
2: Five minutes.
1: And um, were you watching him? Were you going up and down the stairs? What were you doing during these five minutes?
2: I went to the store, put this, the sodas in the store, mm-hmm. come back out. And I stand in front of the store, and there he was, in the Mm -hmm. front of the store.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Then I approached him and I asked him if he wanted something to drink. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: He didn't answer me. He nodded his head. I went down to the basement, he followed me to the basement. And whatever happened there, it choked him. It was something that just happened like quick. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I had did,
1: did he resist? No. What did he do? You were facing him from the back?
2: I was facing him from the back. He was like standing here, I was standing behind him. Mm-hmm. I shook him. He went down, bent into his hands. He went down to the floor. I put him in the bag. Mm-hmm. Simple as that.
1: And how long did it take before he went down to the floor? How long did you have your hands around his neck?
2: Maybe a minute, Mm -hmm. two minutes.
1: Did he make any sounds while you were choking him?
2: No. I don't even know if it happened. Mm -hmm. I never saw his face.
1: Where were you going to get the soda from?
2: In the basement. There was a fridge in the basement. Mm-hmm.
1: So he he went down the stairs and he was behind you? Is that right?
2: He was behind me. Then mm-hmm. he went in front of me. I stood be- behind him
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I choked him. Then when I choked him, I started shaking. And... Uh, there was a plastic bag and a box. Where did it came from? I do not know. It was there. So I put him inside the bag. Then I tied the bag with the same bag. I put him inside the box. It was like a banana box, something. I don't remember. What kind of box was it? It was cardboard box. I put them up. my shoulder I carried him out of the store out to like a block away block and a half away from the store. There was people following me from the basement. All the people that were there at the same time when he was there. They followed me out. I took him I put him like a block and a half away. I set him up on the basement of the hallway. Mm -hmm. It was like a walkway, the hallway. They had no doors, nothing. Mm -hmm. I just went down the steps, four steps, and set the box in between the hallway there, and came back. Mm -hmm. Who took it? I don't know. Anything happened to it? I don't know. I have no idea. Somebody must took it. Somebody must know something. Anybody answer? I don't know. I have no idea. I was the truth. I don't know nothing. And I went back to work. And then later on that day, um, I heard the news that there was a shagamason. missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they show his picture on the on the TV, mm-hmm. but I didn't say anything because I didn't feel like I had to say anything. So I didn't feel like do I do anything wrong.
0: Did you catch some of the strange phrases there? He's not sure if it even happened. People followed him out of the basement. Let me explain. Pedro is a diagnosed schizophrenic who suffers from hallucinations, and he has a low IQ, enough to be considered intellectually disabled. His defense argued that he couldn't have done it because he simply didn't have the brain power to dream up a scheme to get Eton down into that basement. Outside of his confession, after all those years, there was no evidence tying him or the bodega basement to the crime. So they asked him about what Eton was wearing, any distinguishing marks the boy had and he didn't remember. The only thing he claimed to remember was that the boy was blonde and carrying a book bag. Here's what Pedro had to say about that.
2: I don't even remember the color of his clothes. But mm-hmm. well, uh, the only thing I remember is the book bag. Mm-hmm. I think it was a dark book bag. Mm-hmm. And he had blonde hair, that's it. I never saw his face or anything.
1: And you said it was a dark blue book bag and, and, and what other features did it have? What kind of, you know, did it have any kind of patterns or styles dark. on it? I don't remember. But you remembered a dark blue or, or something black? Probably black. And, and when you you say a book bag, is there anything else about it that you remember just in terms of features or of how it might have looked and, and that sort of thing?
2: It was a white strap huh? book bag. I think it was black, I'm not sure.
1: So the kind of thing that somebody would wear on one shoulder? On yeah, one
2: shoulder.
1: Instead of two shoulders? Yeah. Okay. Something like that. When did you, um, when did you throw the bag over the freezer? Was that before you put him in the bag wow. or, or when?
2: Before I put him in the in the bag, I threw the bag. his moved back over the freezer. He went behind the freezer.
1: But you did that before you put him in the bag?
2: Yeah, I didn't put, I didn't put The the book bag, I did not put it in the bag, in the box. Why? I don't know. I just grabbed it, threw it over there like that. Mm -hmm. And I just put him inside the bag, the box.
1: Did you try to take his clothes off? No. Did he try to walk out when you grabbed him? No. Was he surprised?
2: I wouldn't, I wouldn't know.
1: So he didn't even...
2: He didn't react.
1: He didn't, and he didn't, he didn't react? And you did it from behind. Yeah.
0: But according to ProPublica's interview with one of the detectives on the case from the beginning, the bodega was not only searched, it was almost a base command post. And according to him, the first place they would have searched would have been behind the basement freezer. But nothing was ever found. At the time he was arrested, he was living in South New Jersey, married with three kids. But his sister and brother-in-law claimed that what he did was a well-known family secret. Something he'd confessed to during a prayer group right around the time that it happened, but back then no one ever turned him in. Although over the years they say he's mentioned it in passing. But listen to this: Pedro's confession isn't quite over. At Some
1: point, um, you went back to take a look at the box. When did that happen? Oh, and at the what day, time? And
2: the next day. I went tell me back. About there. that. Like, about ten o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. To see if the box was there, but it was not there. Mm. It was come.
1: Mm.
2: Somebody must have removed it from there. Mm. I don't know if they put it in the garbage. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know if I don't know if he left. I don't know if he's still alive. Mm. He might be alive mm. because he was still alive mm. in the box.
1: Tell me about that. You say that he was still alive. He Tell me still what you remember. In the box.
2: It was moving in the box. What did you feel? I feel his movement in his when I was telling him. Mm-hmm. He must have been still alive. He probably is alive somewhere. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so you felt him moving. Was Did you feel him, um, was he, um, when you put him in the bag, he wasn't resisting? He wasn't moving then? No. In the bag.
2: But then afterwards he started moving.
1: While you were carrying?
2: I was carrying him, so he I mean, was still alive.
1: When you were when you were um, when you moved him in the bag, and when you, was he wet? Was he dry? Was he?
2: He was dry.
1: He was dry. Okay, and um, and and how did you get him in the bag? Did you do it by? I put
2: the bag on his feet, and I just raise it up.
1: Mm-hmm. You tied it up over his head, and and
2: picked and- the bag and put it in the box. You close the bag with the four leads, Mm -hmm. you know, one between the other. Mm -hmm.
1: Was it hard getting him into the bag? Did he he have to? Mm -hmm. And so you tied a knot? Is that what you did at the top of the bag? Or you you used to tie? You tied a knot with the bag? With the bag. Understood.
0: Is that the confused ramblings of a mentally ill man? A killer trying to avoid a murder charge? Or was Etan actually still alive in that plastic bag inside a cardboard box? Pedro had no criminal convictions before or since, although both of his two ex-wives claim he was verbally and physically abusive, according to ProPublica. He pleaded not guilty at the trial in 2015, but the jury couldn't decide if he was guilty or if his confession had been coerced. That effort ended in a mistrial. He went back to court for a second time in 2017 and again swore that he was innocent. Now, that jury listened to his confession over and over again, but ultimately decided he was telling the truth and he was guilty. He got 25 years to life behind bars for kidnapping and murder. Many people believe Pedro didn't do it, and the real killer is another man, the babysitter's child-molesting boyfriend, Jose Ramos. When he was interrogated maybe two or three years after Eton disappeared, he claimed that on May 25, 1979, he'd snatched a little boy off the street and brought him back to his apartment to rape him. He said he was, quote, 90% sure it was the kid with the face on all the missing posters. But when he was finished with him, he claimed the boy left his apartment on his own. There was no proof that the boy he claimed to have raped was Eton, or that his story was true at all. Jose eventually made his way to Pennsylvania, where he was finally caught and convicted for raping two little blue-eyed blonde boys not long after that police interrogation. That landed him in prison for 27 years, and every year on the day Etan disappeared, his father sent Jose his son's missing person flyer with a note on the back. What did you do to my little boy? Jose never said a thing, and to any law enforcement who asked, he didn't know anything about anything. But that's not to say he wasn't talking about it. He allegedly got pretty chatty with his cellmate. Now, that man claimed Jose described what he did to Eton in excruciating detail. But the worst part is how his story ended. Eton is dead. There is no body and there never will be a body, according to his quote in the New York Times. And then, in 2001, someone else came forward claiming that Jose was indeed Eton's killer, his own brother, Rinaldo Ramos. He'd been arrested in Florida that year for sexually abusing children. Apparently, it runs in the family, and you're about to hear why. While Rinaldo was in police custody, he claimed his older brother was the one responsible for the notorious kidnapping. He was sure of it because he knew firsthand how evil Jose was. When Rinaldo was 10, his brother dragged him behind a white castle and forced him to perform oral sex on him and a friend of his. When he tried to pull away, he knocked him out with a rock. He still has that scar, and then the victim went on to abuse other boys, just like his brother. Investigators flew down from New York to talk to him about it, but when their interview was over, they walked away disappointed. Ronaldo didn't know any specifics that could help them prove his brother did it. By the 25th anniversary of Etan's disappearance, no one was any closer to getting justice for him. And then, in 2012, two things happened. First, Jose was released from prison, which was a very bad idea. Fortunately, he was only free for about 60 seconds before he was arrested again for giving a fake forwarding address. He claimed he was headed for a cousin's place in the Bronx, but when they checked up on that, police discovered that the cousin had moved 30 years earlier and they wanted nothing to do with their terrifying family member. In reality, Jose was planning on meeting up with a prison pen pal so he could use and abuse her grandson, according to the New York Post. This man is a good argument for castration. He's still in prison today, and fingers crossed they throw away the key. But I told you, two things happened in 2012. Here's the second thing, and some people believe this is what led to Pedro's arrest. In April of that year, police got a tip that Eton had been murdered in another basement nearby his bus stop a workshop that was once used by a local handyman named Othniel Miller. He was questioned at the very start of the investigation because he was seen with Eton the night before. He may have even given him a dollar for doing some chores for him. That same dollar Eton was hoping to use to buy a soda before school. And during the time Eton disappeared, Othniel was remodeling that basement workshop, including putting in a new floor. 33 years later, his ex-wife contacted police to say they should look at him closer. Her allegations got them a search warrant to dig up his basement, searching for any remains. But nothing was ever found. However, that highly publicized search put Etan's disappearance back in the spotlight, and that's what prompted Pedro's family to come forward to share their family's secret. So, what do you think of my childhood nightmare? Is the right man behind bars? Amy is coming up next to tell you all about the first crime to keep her awake at night. It's pretty wild.
3: This story chilled me to my core when I first heard about it as a kid. And by the time the story got to my ears, it was a long since over. But the tale of the South Hill Rapist is never too far away from my nightmares. The attack started in the summer of 1978 in my hometown, Spokane, Washington. A 19-year-old girl was his first victim. She was fighting with her husband, and she stormed out of a restaurant alone around midnight. And as she was walking home, a strange man wearing running gear jumped out from behind a parked car, dragged her into the bushes, and raped her. He was wearing gloves, and he jammed his hand down her throat to stop her screams. For the next four years, the same man allegedly attacked more than 40 other women in the same way. He targeted women running or walking alone. He didn't always wait for night to fall. Daylight attacks were common, and he always dressed as a runner to avoid suspicion. But there was one more thing about the South Hill rapist that stood out. He was so violent, the attacks bordered on attempted murder. His most well-known victim was a local celebrity news anchor by the name of Shelley Monahan. In September 1979, she became part of the news story she'd been covering for a year. Back then, she was known as Sunshine Shelley, a nighttime news reporter, and one night as she was leaving the station on the South Hill, she was beaten, strangled, and sexually assaulted by the man she'd been telling her listeners to be on the lookout for. Another woman described getting off the bus and walking home alone around dusk right after her first day of work at Zales Jewelry Store in the fall of 1980. She saw a man jog past her and hide behind a motorhome. So that was weird, but she thought he was playing a game with someone. She didn't know she was that person. As she walked by, he jumped out, dragged her to a vacant lot nearby, beat her until she saw stars and brutally raped her, according to the Seattle Times. The whole time, he was asking twisted questions about her sex life. But, I mean, he wasn't looking for answers. He had his hand shoved so far down her throat, she couldn't swallow for days. But when headlights from a passing car hit him square in the face, she got a good look a view that kept her up at night for decades, especially since his parting words to her were, the police can't protect you 24 hours a day. But in the end, she got him back. It was her case alone that outlasted his legal maneuverings and got him off the streets, but not quite there yet. In 1980, the police quietly formed a task force to try and catch this South Hill rapist. They didn't announce it with a press conference or anything. They didn't want to cause alarm, but I mean, they were about two years too late for that. The neighborhood was in a full-fledged panic. Women were arming themselves with mace and even handguns. I mean, every man out for a jog was side-eyed and avoided. The attacks stood out. Not just because this serial rapist took so many victims over such a long period of time, but because of where they were happening. Because back then, the South Hill was considered to be one of the nicest neighborhoods in the city. Reaching far back in the town's history, some of the richest and most prominent members of the community called it home. And as you're going to hear, this rapist was no exception. So with no end to the attacks in sight, some reporters took the initiative. And in January 1981, the Spokesman Review, one of the city's two newspapers back then, stumbled on a major clue. As they were putting together a map with the locations of each rape, they noticed a connection to the neighborhood bus routes. So based on the sheer number of attacks, police and reporters figured there were three, maybe even four, rapists working together. The story took off and a theory started to develop. Whoever these monsters were, they were watching the buses. On the other hand, the city's other paper, the Spokane Daily Chronicle, they seem to be taking a less interested approach to the crime wave even seeming to encourage potential victims to take it down a notch. The paper's managing editor was a man named Gordon Coe. He wrote an editorial that said, in part, quote, It is hoped that every man out jogging is not hounded off the streets because some rape reports have said the attacker wore jogging clothes. (laughs) I will continue. But despite the task force, public awareness, and media attention, the rapes didn't stop. In fact, they got more frequent. In February 1981, around 7 a.m., a woman was raped while running alone near a local junior high on the South Hill. Later, a janitor at the school remembered a silver Chevy citation that was illegally parked near the bus lanes the morning before the rape. The bad parking job annoyed him so much, he wrote down the license plate number. And when he handed it over to the police, they traced the plates back to Gordon Coe, managing editor of the only newspaper in town that seemed to be taking a hands-off approach to the rapist story. So, was he the guy? Case closed? Not quite. He had an ironclad alibi when the rape happened, but his 34-year-old son didn't. His name was Frederick Harlan Coe. But after high school, he started going by Kevin for no one knows what reason. And when they brought him in for a police lineup, the Zales assistant manager that he ambushed from behind the RV, she pointed straight at him. Kevin Coe had moved back to Spokane in the late 70s after a stint as a radio disc jockey and realtor in Los Angeles, Reno, and Las Vegas. He wasn't very successful in either career. Now back in his hometown, he was coming off his first marriage and on the tail end of a long-term relationship. When that ended, he was back to living with his parents and trying to fake it until he made it at a South Hill real estate office. The former secretary testified that he started work there full of BS and bravado, dressing in three-piece suits and fancy shoes, bragging about his former career as a radio host like he was Casey Kasem slumming it in Spokane real estate. According to Jim Kirshner, the Spokesman Review dug up everything they could about Kevin Coe, and it was just as bananas as you might think. Not only did he claim he was a radio DJ, he also called himself a media man and a champion boxer. Although, I don't think beating up vulnerable women as you rape them really qualifies a person for the ring. He also fancied himself to be, quote, one of our country's great new satirists. He had one book under his belt, a self-published tome titled Sex in the White House, subtitled, Cause after all, politics is dirty business. His coworker began to suspect that something was wrong with Kevin Coe when he started interacting with her like she was his mother, even though they were almost the same age. According to her testimony quoted in the Spokesman Review, he would do things like call her at home to ask her why no one in the office liked him. But it was what happened later that convinced her that he might actually be dangerous. It was the summer of 1980, and she was at the park for this community event. Shelley Monahan was putting on a dance for local high schools, and whilst she was there... This woman, his coworker, noticed Kevin hiding behind a tree, watching the newscaster. Mm. Of course, she didn't realize then that Kevin was the rapist in Shelley's nightmares. And after that, his shiny veneer mask started slipping at work. He didn't wear those nice suits anymore. Instead, he started to show up in like dirty sweats, sometimes wearing a stocking cap and gloves. And even more alarming. Sometimes he had deep scratches on his face. He claimed he got them from like animal attacks while jogging because that's something that happens. Dogs, cats just leap on your face. It wasn't long before he was fired. After one of the victims was able to ID him in early spring of 1981, the other victims were called in. No one else got as good a look at him as the Zales manager, but the police were trying to stack the deck with as many witnesses as possible. Like the woman he raped near the junior high school, she recognized his picture and others were able to pick him out of a lineup. And as more and more victims ID'd him, the police realized that they had to abandon their first theory and accept the horrifying truth. The South Hill rapes were committed by one man, not three or four, and that man needed to be put away for a long, long time. And to do that, they needed a lot of evidence. So they resorted to using a more non-traditional method to jog more memories, hypnosis. They figured some victims might be able to remember what he looked like or how his voice sounded if they dug it out of their subconscious. And by the end of March, 1981, he'd been arrested and charged with six counts of rape and released on a $35,000 bond. But the charges against him were short-lived victory Hypnotizing his victims would prove to be their biggest legal mistake. But before this case ever got to court, it was a favorite of the local media. After all, how many attackers commit more than 40 rapes and just happen to be the pampered son of a prominent local family? His father, Gordon, that managing editor, he had to take a leave of absence from the Spokane Chronicle. And by October of 1981, he was strongly encouraged not to come back, and he took an early retirement. But it was Kevin's mother, Ruth, that was really the one to watch out for. Oh, he was a real mama's boy, like the way you might call Norman Bates a real mama's boy. His relationship with his mother was eyebrow-raising, to say the least. As he was growing up, she would alternate between like screaming obscenities at him to treating him like a lover, according to Jack Olson's book on this case called Son. It's named after the way Ruth always referred to Kevin. Quote, for years, she kept her hooks in him. She followed him to San Francisco, to LA, to Vegas. She'd stay six months at a time, and he'd always act glad. I've never known anyone whose mother had that much control over him. That was one of Kevin Coe's high school friends quoted in the book, Son. Together, mother and son decided that his best defense against the overwhelming evidence against him would be to simply deny everything and not even go to the trouble of hiring a private lawyer. He qualified for a public defender since he was broke and living at home, so that's what he went with. On the stand, he spoke on his own behalf, and he went on and on about his career success and his own investigation into the South Hill rapes. In fact, he went so far as to say he was trying to supply his father, the newspaper man, with tips. And as for the women who recognized him, he claimed it was just a case of mistaken identity. Just to put it in perspective, later, a forensic psychologist diagnosed him as a sexual sadist, according to the Seattle Times. His trial started in July 1981, but because of the media attention, a jury had to be brought over from Seattle. It didn't help his case, though. By the end of that month, he'd been convicted of four counts of first-degree rape, but this story has yet another twist. During his trial, his mother took the stand and tried to give him an alibi for each and every rape that the prosecution said he committed. Ruth was this bigger-than-life character who wore a black wig and doted on her only son to, like, An unhealthy degree. She insisted that son, as she called him, was with her having breakfast or dinner whenever the rapes occurred. Like whatever meal that they fell across, that that was the meal that they were having together. And if they weren't dining together, then they were doing their own investigation into the bus routes. She claimed that son would jog and she would pace him in her car behind him. But despite their best detective work, they couldn't find the rapist, so they gave up. Yeah, the jury didn't buy it. He was found guilty, and then the focus turned to getting him into a good place where he would be treated well. Because the state prison in Walla Walla was brutal, and they were worried about his safety. I love it when the rapist is worried about his own safety. Instead... He and his mother wanted him to get sent to a treatment facility for sexual predators. Not that he was acknowledging that he had any kind of issues in that area. In fact, he told the court many times that he wasn't going to go through treatment and he never did in prison, but he was rethinking those statements after he got that guilty verdict. Now, this time he used the family money to hire an experienced attorney to help him with the sentencing phase and to help curry favor with the judge and walk back his refusals to get treatment, he admitted that he might have raped one person, but not that he was the South Hill rapist. Instead, he called his crime a copycat because he was jealous of whoever the South Hill rapist was. His verbal gymnastics didn't work, and in August 1981, he was sent to Walla Walla for life. But unfortunately, that's not where this story ends. Kevin was put away, but his mother was still a free woman, and she was just as dangerous as her son. So Ruth was so angry about Kevin's fate that she decided to take out the two people she blamed for his demise. She put the word out, the judge and the prosecutor had to die. But since she was just a criminal and not like a criminal mastermind, the police got wind of it and she ended up talking to an undercover cop instead of the hardened hitman she thought she was making a deal with. Her directive was for him to either kill them both or make them suffer. This is a direct quote from that conversation as she was talking about the prosecutor. He has been so filthy. And my feeling for him is that I would love to see him just an adult vegetable that had to be cared for, that his family had to take care of for the rest of his life. I mean, diapers and all the rest of it. He wanted 42 years of my son's life gone. I'd like to see him sit 42 years as a baby, but to have him gone would be great too. I mean, you can never be sure, I suppose, how you clobber them. That could be the way it'd come out. So dead is great, but I do think he should suffer. Dang, mom. As you might guess, she was arrested the next day and convicted in 1982. But the judge, not the one she tried to kill, a different judge took pity on her. Or maybe he was just afraid for his own safety. In any case, he compared the whole thing to a Greek tragedy and ultimately her sentence shook out to one year in the county jail of her choosing and 10 years probation. But wait, there's more. I told you the hypnosis tactic would come back to bite them. Well, it took a big old chunk out of the prosecution's case on appeal in 1984. The state Supreme Court overturned four of his convictions and decided that a whole new trial was in order. And by this time, there wasn't a man, woman, or child in Spokane that didn't know about Kevin Coe and his crazy mother. So they had to move the second trial to Seattle. And yeah, every one of his victims had to take the stand and relive the nightmare all over again. In February 1985, he was found guilty again, but this time only on three rape charges and his new sentence put him behind bars for life plus 55. Now, if only that conviction had stuck, but it didn't. Four more years went by and the state Supreme Court reversed two more of the charges. The final charge, the one that stuck was the Zales victim because she was the only one that wasn't hypnotized and she was one of the first to ID him out of a lineup. That was for her rape and hers alone that this serial rapist got 25 years. He could have been out in less than five, but he bizarrely refused to go to any of his parole hearings. His sentence was up in 2006, and he was about to be a free man, but then the attorney general threw a Hail Mary. Get this, in Washington, a sexually violent predator like Kevin Ko can be forced to go into treatment even after their prison sentence expires. Washington was the first state to pass that law in 1990, and the treatment center that he's at right now is on McNeil Island near Seattle. So avoid McNeil Island near Seattle. It was basically created to keep people like him off the streets, but it did require yet another trial to get him sent there. And again, his victims turned out in droves, God bless these women, to say their peace and do what they could to keep him away from other women. And it worked. He's been locked up there since 2010. And meanwhile, his story became the real life plot of a made for TV movie called The Sins of the Mother. As for his actual mother and father, they both died in the 90s, just years after each other natural deaths. And Kevin chose not to attend their funerals. And ever since then, Spokane has never spawned another rapist like Kevin Coe again. Although they do have some very strange serial killers that we're going to need to talk about in future recaps. But for now, I want to say thank you so much for spending your time with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Chris and I are here every week with new stories, and I hope you'll join us back here again soon. Until then, stay safe and be wary of joggers playing hide-and-seek.